0: Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host, Rob Zachney, on the newest podcast from Idle Thumbs. We're very happy to be joined today by a special guest, Tom Chick of Quarter to Three. And our topic this week is a big one, as big as games themselves. How does our skill at a game influence, hinder, or completely keep us from understanding it? So Tom, welcome so much. Welcome to the podcast. We're really glad to have you here.
1: No, no, I, thank you for having me. I, you guys have such a great two-person thing going. I actually kind of feel like I'm intruding, but, but thank you for letting me intrude. <laughs> I,
2: I think we named an episode after you, though, uh, at a certain point. So in many ways, you've been, you've been yeah. the third guest. Uh, you know, we always leave a seat at the table for Tom, basically, we do. every We've, time we yeah. record. We've talked well, about uh, the chick parabola a few ah, times, cool. I
0: think.
1: Right. <laughs> and all three of us go way back, so it's kind of like sitting uh, down with a couple of old friends. So again, super thanks for having me here.
0: Awesome. Well, so Tom, it feels like this topic, uh, all of us have been playing something lately that are <laughs> is really, really sort of, um, you know, I've been calling it sort of hate-fucking The Witness lately. That's how I've been sort of playing games lately. You know, sort of my understanding of The Witness has, has changed as I've gone through and played it. Are you playing anything that is, you know, really, like your skill at the game is hindering the way you understand it or helping you understand it?
1: What I've been playing lately has been kind of, might say skill-free, games that don't require any skill, that are more like rides that you just sit back and enjoy, that are kind of closer to to watching movies, uh, some of which work better than others. Uh, So lately, I've been on a a skill-free bender, you
2: you might say. (laughs) I've been on that bender for for like two decades now, so uh, (laughs) welcome to the party.
1: Now, I know that's not true about you, Rob, because as a fellow RTS and sometime MOBA player, those are are prime examples of games that I don't think you can understand without a certain degree of skill. Um, and, and Rob, I know that's part of your background as well.
2: Yeah, but and and that's actually an interesting. Uh, that, that's sort of what what prompted this in some ways is that um, you know, now that I've had a little time to get a little more distance uh, from Homeworld Deserts of Karak, which I, I really really enjoyed. Uh, but I I sort I sort of found myself wondering, you know it was It was a good game, but I really fell in love with it, and I kind of wondered how much of that was because I, it was one of those games that I really, really clicked with. Uh, and, and that is a thing that, you know, can, can change from, from RTS to RTS. And that's a, that's a good genre where, where I encounter this feeling a lot. There are some games where I, I really, really struggle to, to ever sort of play them with any degree of reasonable skill. And StarCraft II is, is one of those games. Uh, I think it's no coincidence that my views of StarCraft II have softened, uh, as more and more things have sort of come online to, uh, de-emphasize one versus one, like ladder play. And given more options for like uh, playing with friends and playing cooperatively, um, but StarCraft Two has always been one of those games where my capat like I've been at arm's length, length from it in part because. Not too far into a game, it begins to overwhelm my capacity to actually play it, uh, in the way that it clearly wants to be played, right? I'm losing the capacity to even act on these sort of decisions and, and, tensions that that design introduces. Whereas a game like, you know, Homeworld Deserts of Karak, for some reason, I just end up really clicking with everything that game is doing, uh, particularly in the, in the multiplayer setting and, obviously I'm going to come away with more positive, like it's going to be a more fun experience. And, and then there's a lot of reasons like why I think that experience works. And that's where the critical part of, part of the brain comes in. But nevertheless, I, I, you know, as I got some distance from it, I started wondering like what role that, that sort of enjoyment, right? That ability to, that ability to click and click with, and then access parts of a design uh, influences your impressions of it.
1: Rob, it sounds like you're very much talking about the multiplayer or even just skirmishes. Um, Because a lot of people buy StarCraft just for the campaign, Uh, and I would argue that playing the campaign is much more of an experience-based versus skill-based situation, where you can play the campaign and still be terrible at the multiplayer, which is (laughs) basically a core part of the the design of what they were trying to accomplish with StarCraft II, but they sort of conceded that sometimes people who don't want to just play a game to get better at it will want to play our game. So let's give them this relatively skill-free experience with the campaign. Uh, and I find that unlike the multiplayer, the campaigns in StarCraft really aren't that demanding for several reasons, one of which is you can just choose what difficulty you want. Yeah. Uh, it's always kind of, it's always scripted. The missions, you can play and fail and think, oh, well, I'm supposed to do X, Y, or Z, and you just do that, and it's very simple next time. Um, but Blizzard, by and large, is, is – I would say one of the best publishers at being aware of we need to cater to players who want to play for skill and we need to, be, uh, we need to cater to players who just want to lean back and have an experience, because that's true of StarCraft II, certainly of Diablo, uh, World of Warcraft. Um, so, so some games are more experience-oriented, some more skill-oriented, and some sit smack dab across the entire spectrum, and I think Blizzard's games are a perfect example of that.
2: I sometimes worry a little bit that clicking with a game like that makes me... Feel like well that's like that feel like that's a better game right because it's kind of flattering to encounter a game that's like hey your skill set totally matches up with what this game values congratulations uh, and and it, it, it it's something I I have to sort of put aside right is sort of the either the the, the flattering aspect of a game that you really that, that you really uh, understand and sort of intuitively grasp uh, versus sort of the ego bruising uh, effect of of a game that, that just that that just continually uh, eludes you.
0: Yeah, for me, a lot of uh, anything basically MOBA-related, I've, I've never Ugh. really spent... <laughs> Basically, any time at all. You know, I played some some sort of mobile lights. I guess you could call them awesome knots and a, and a couple of other things that were. You know, I I could understand this is probably a cool experience. People who know what they're doing are probably going to enjoy this. But I don't have that skill set whatsoever. I just don't have it. Doesn't mean I, I'm not capable of building it one day. Uh, but I just don't have it. So I just it, the meaning of these games eludes me entirely. I I can't even. You know, I can sort of, you know, sit in and listen to the sort of beginner commentary at something, uh, you know, like the international, and, and be like, oh, well, okay, I, you know, nodding, kind of like an idiot, like, all right, I understand that on some level, but really, the the actual essence of play, what's actually going on, completely escapes me. You know, sort of sitting here as I am, and that's. Interesting and weird because that certainly doesn't happen with football, you know, or or soccer or whatever else. Other things that I don't play myself, you know, sort of physically, but I, you know, can understand sort of the language of football or, or soccer or whatever else that it is. Um, and that's interesting to me. That seems like a fundamentally different thing about esports uh, sort of separated from traditional sports.
1: Uh, Can I just say something that might get you guys a lot of hate mail? Oh, uh,
2: please do. That's why we have
0: you. Yes, that's that's why you (laughs) are here.
1: If you think of real-time strategy games as one of the more demanding, skill-based genres, there's a divide between what's called macro and micro. And people who play RTSs kind of intuitively know this. You have your economy that you build up. You use that to build units. But then there's the aspect of the game where you have to manage those units and their special powers and how they're positioned and what they do. The economy is the macro The little unit management is the micro. MOBAs, I feel, uh, are a genre that sprung up from people who couldn't manage both of those demands. Mm -hmm. People who were like, oh my god, RTSs are too hard. I can't do micro and macro at the same time. Ah, This is too difficult for me. I'm not good enough at RTSs. So they take out the macro and they create an entire genre that just focuses on that one skill set, the micro, which, in a way, is much more gratifying because it's the very moment-to-moment. I press a button, I watch this skill fire off, and there's some fancy special effect. Uh, So MOBAs are basically for people who aren't good enough to play RTSs. There, (laughs) There I said it. I'll say it again. Um,
2: Uh, Tom, I did want to say the interesting thing with MOBAs, uh, to um, your point, I think they certainly started out as a way to... Uh, sort of give people the, the, the fun part, like the part of the RTS that they could manage and the part of the RTS that most people have, have probably the most fun with. Uh, and then, and then sort of chop off, uh, that half of the game that just makes you feel like an incompetent, uh, fool. The interesting thing is that while it's, while that's where it started, I think MOBAs have developed they've sort of recaptured that complexity uh in part because as they've sort of grown and grown uh, both in terms of like number of of heroes on offer or just in terms of like the, the you know the the sheer uh number of people playing it and the maturity of the community where where the skill now starts to get reintroduced you may not have that macro level thing you have to worry about but now so much knowledge is assumed of every player. You have to be you have to be versed not only in your champion, but then in the way that champion matches up with every other character you could possibly encounter on the battlefield. You have right. to be completely versed in knowing how to work with your your team's lineups and how to cooperate, uh, which is I, I think now where sort of the the high level, you know, at the high level, I think that's what separates uh, gifted amateurs from the real pros, right? And it's, there's even
1: a word for that, you know. That's that's the meta is instead of the macro, there's the meta in in a MOBA, isn't <laughs> there?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I mean, it's I, I think it's an interesting thing because I, I I think the genre sort of took off because it was. You know, it was all the fun stuff of RTSs without the the annoying book learning (laughs) uh, required. But now, what do people complain about in MOBAs? Why do people say, well, MOBAs are so hard to get into? It's because now, uh, okay, it's easy to sort of just play a character and screw around with it. But to actually be remotely useful to a team uh, now (laughs) requires as much or more study than getting into an RTS.
1: And and that's partly too why MOBAs are so demanding. Is there's no real single compo- single player component to MOBAs. It's all about the interaction of the ten players that, that comprise the entire match. Uh, and if you're the if you're the weak link amongst all ten of those players, it, it's going to be kind of painful. Uh, so yeah. So so most MOBAs are as demanding as the skill level of the other nine players in a way. But Danielle, what you were talking about also with watching games uh, and being a spectator. Uh, and if you have skill, you can appreciate them much more. The one that eludes me, and I play some of these games, but this, I think, is probably the single most skill-oriented, skill-demanding genre, is uh, fighting games, like, sure. like Street Fighters yeah. and, and Soul Calibers and stuff like that. There are two completely different levels that you can enjoy those at. Anybody can sit down and just spaz out and mash buttons and watch cool punches happen, uh, but then there's this level of understanding where you're worried about, like, frame counts of animations for certain moves and how they interact with another character's moveset. Uh, and that's the, the demanding level for which almost all of these games are created. Uh, they're made specifically for that fan base. Yep. And, and it is, it, it's, it's hilarious to me to watch people who know fighting games watching a match – because I'm just sitting here watching these characters doing these crazy animations and punches and kicks and grunts. It all looks completely random to, to me. And, and then w- hearing the surge of the crowd, like no, like as somebody starts to do something to interrupt someone else's frame animation, uh, and the crowd like cheers, I have no <laughs> idea why they're cheering at any given <laughs> moment. Uh, but it's a perfect example of a genre that is so skill-based that... You can't even watch it unless you're amongst that sort of hardcore set of players who play it or that, that real demanding skill level.
2: It is kind of remarkable how a lot of fighting games actually, in their pacing and the way they, they play at sort of the high level, actually strongly resemble like a boxing or MMA match in terms of like the the, the back and forth.
0: You know, I've, I've had an interest in understanding what these things are and how they work, even though I don't have an actual Again, the skill set, or the, you know, it's almost, you know, when we're talking about skill sets, it's almost also sort of a a kind of language capacity, too, in certain ways. Like, I don't even understand the language of playing some of these games. So,
1: Which is part of why I want to hear you talk about The Witness, Danielle, because I think The Witness (laughs) is an an amazing... So I personally didn't like The Witness because of this, but I think it's what it does brilliantly. But The Witness is an amazing game about teaching you a skill and, and literally a, a language. Like when I sit down to play The Witness, I, there, nobody who sits down to play The Witness knows that that a square has to be paired with another square. I mean, that's that's that simply doesn't exist as a thing that we know. Yeah. It's not a skill that we have. Uh, and The Witness is a game entirely, and I would argue only, about teaching people that. So, Danielle, I'd love to hear about your situation with how skilled you are or aren't, at The Witness and how that's affected your enjoyment of it.
0: Sure. So, you know, I don't want to harp on it too, too much because I've been probably talking about this a a lot and also tweeting about it incessantly, which I apologize to everyone who probably has unfollowed me for it. But um, yeah, so I, I talked a little bit about how it sort of got me in a programming mindset last week and helped me sort of overcome some uh, difficulties I was having <laughs> actually working on a little game project. So it's been useful in in putting me into a productive mindset, at least in terms of sort of teaching me a skill and teaching me this language. Um, it's also, however, uh, very, very much, God, I'll, I'll just give you an example. I, there are times when I'm playing this game where I know what I need to do. I kind of, you know, I, I I have made the logical leap of, okay, if this, then this, if this and, and this, then that, you know, I'm kind of doing the math in my head. I'm doing the logic in my head, but then I get to the point where I'm doing the logic in my head and I realized what the next seven steps are. And I just don't want to do the next seven (laughs) steps. (laughs) You know, like I I've done the, what feels like the hard part, the sort of intellectual legwork, but I just don't want to do the grunt work of it as well. And I'm I'm just butting my head up against that at this point. Because, you know, it was a long slog even to get to this point. You know, there was a time where I almost quit the game because I just wasn't getting it on some level. You know, there were the infamous sort of Tetronimo puzzles, uh, you know, especially in the marsh area. And it was just slamming my head against a brick wall with those for a long time until I just sort of, I had a breakthrough and then, oh my God, it was so wonderful and so great. And I felt like I was getting it and moving my way and moving my way and moving my way. And I beat the marsh the other night. I almost had a party for myself um, because I was so proud because I felt like you know, hitting up relatives for graduation gifts or something like this. was <laughs> This was so much more difficult. And I was a philosophy major in college. This to me felt so much more difficult than any of my logic classes in college, which maybe is a little bit sad. And maybe it's just been a long time since I did them, but it just broke my brain. And then I kind of got to this other area and I was just like, man, oh, <laughs> I am just tired uh, so I've sort of adopted uh, an athletic mindset now with The Witness. I've, 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 The nerd side has gotten too tired and the jock side just is carrying the nerd side through, you know, sort of treating it like a marathon. Like, well, we just have another 16 miles to go and you just have to keep going. So I've, I've really had a journey with, with this game, basically.
1: And that, that's the right mindset, by the way. Like it, having yeah. a graduation party for you beating the Marsh would be like having a graduation party for graduating from sixth grade. Yeah, like, basically, <laughs> you, uh, because what, the reason you're having to do those those uh, extended tetronimo puzzles, Danielle, is because it's still teaching you. It is not yeah. done with you. Oh, uh, yeah. You are basically having to do homework <laughs> to then fold those tetronimo puzzles and these exponential developments of the rules into even more puzzles. Uh, so, uh, and that that was one of the that's one of the reasons that I feel that Witness is. The most pointless game I have ever played, <laughs> because all it all it does is teach you how to play it. it the Witness is nothing but one long tutorial, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure that Jonathan Blow would even disagree. I mean, I think that's kind of the point of the Witness. You can roll out highfalutin terms like heuristics, and and that's what it's getting at. But but so Danielle, that whole marathon analogy. Uh, yeah. You do the witness, so you can do the witness, and it'll teach you how to do the witness, yeah. and so on and so on and so on, until you get to the end of the story. And even then, there's still all this content.
0: Yeah, uh, it would feel better if I was developing a skill set I could apply to something else in my life. And and that, you
1: know, I, I love that you said that because <laughs> the, this idea of a skill in a video game applying to your real life. Rob and I have been doing have been playing games for years that we play, and they encourage us. To look up little chapters of history, yes, like from playing yes. war games, and and Rob, I know we've talked about this since we moves ahead all the time is like World War One. I. I don't I don't know anything about the the Ottoman Empire and World War One, but I ended up playing this little solitaire game called Ottoman Sunset, and then reading about all this stuff about that front of World War One, and it was fascinating to me. And it's not necessarily a skill based; it's more an interest based
2: But I think there's a lot of games that invite you to think. You're taking something useful out of it, like I, I would say. After you know playing strategy games and such, and and war games for years and years and years, they probably have affected how I how I encounter the world. Not just like looking up uh, various chapters of history to relate them to to a game that I was playing or vice versa, but I, I strongly suspect like the the way I assess problems, the way I assess. Uh, trade-offs, right, on a day-to-day basis is absolutely affected uh, by my experience playing a lot of strategy games. But at the same time, like... You know, other people get that from a lot of different sources, right? Other people get those. You're, everyone's going to encounter those same problems. Everyone's going to maybe bring a different frame of reference to those problems. Uh, so is it, it has, has the game really taught you a skill or just sort of, uh, change the, the, change the frame of reference a, a little bit that you use to apply the skill? I don't know, but I think there's a lot of games and I think war, like war games can be really guilty of this, uh, where not war games, but war gamers, uh, Will sometimes convince you that somehow you're making a virtuous choice just by playing it, right? right? You're, hey, good on you. You're, you could be you could be playing Destiny and grinding for loot, but instead you're learning a thing about the Ottoman Empire because you're a useful person <laughs> of depth and interests.
1: The one that always surprises me that I'm very skeptical of is when people who play MMOs talk about like when they're leading a guild raid or, or whatever that that high end stuff that requires. Managing, you know, twenty four people. They talk about that as as improving their skills at like like, I don't know, like like
2: management. I guess no, Uh, but (laughs) but Jim Rossignol actually says like because you know he he is one of the founders of Rock Paper Shotgun. Uh, Now he is a uh, now he's a game designer. uh, Made sure you were being hunted. It was his experience playing Eve, he said, that actually made him qualified to run Rock Paper Shotgun. Huh. Uh, because he was like the logistics of getting an Eve like uh, corp all on the same page to accomplish like uh, big, important things was actually an experience that he returned to again and again, as he was sort of launching, launching a website uh, and learning how to deal with, uh, you know, peers on a professional basis, uh, you know, sort of a, a first among equals uh, position and then dealing with things like Handling freelancers, uh, con, you know, contracts, that kind of thing. And I thought that was, I thought that was really interesting. And, and and maybe, maybe this is just sort of a a narrative people tell themselves, right? I wasn't (laughs) wasting time, you know, running molten core, uh, you know, three times a week for a year. Uh, I was, I was learning executive skills. Uh, but at the same time, then, then I hear, you know, someone like, someone like Jim, uh, really sincerely say, like, you know, when when it came time to step up and and sort of uh you know be an entrepreneur, uh he didn't have any of the skills uh, for that except the ones he'd acquired kind of through Eve.
1: I have a
0: couple of examples. The first one is that I sort of learned to read maps and navigate 3D space um, oh, by playing, that. yeah, by playing sort of the early N64 Zelda games, you know, before I could drive, I'm, you know, uh, I was 14, I think when the first, uh, when Ocarina of Time came out. And so I was playing that game and sort of learning how to read maps and sort of how to navigate space. And I think that somewhat helped me sort of develop my sense of direction. Uh, so that's the sort of, like, oh, games can be a little bit useful, maybe. <laughs>
1: that, that, that's fantastic, Danielle, because I yeah. rock at, like, at like like being out on a bicycle or whatever and be, still yeah. being able to find my way back to where I was and exactly. just going off in one direction for a while. And that definitely comes from, like, mapping when you're playing, like, those early wizardry games or whatever totally. or or, yeah. or looking at a, at a map of a 3D space in Descent or something. Uh, yeah. th- that's definitely a real-world skill you can apply, isn't it?
0: So that one so that one's my, my sort of like, that's the useful one that applies to several, uh, you know, just things in life. And then I actually, you know, this will sound like the dorkiest thing you've ever heard. Um, but you know, my medical knowledge is, is at a fairly basic level. I'm, you know, just getting to be an EMT again. I'm not, you know, a doctor, but I have actually had some good experiences with, uh, there are a couple of puzzle games that, that legitimately do teach uh, organic chemistry covalence and Soko bond. They, uh, they have actually helped me sort of understand <laughs> organic chemistry a little bit better. And that is not, you know, to say they are, you, I mean, you're going to be a PhD in chemistry uh, after taking a look at them, but they, they've been kind of fun and sort of scratched the puzzle itch while also actually teaching me something useful, which I think is part of why I got so frustrated at the witness after a while. Cause I was like, this is like those games and you can actually learn about molecules this way, but instead we're just learning something made up.
2: <laughs> so you know before we move on from this i I just want to ask you guys like to what degree do you think like your skill at a game enhances or affects your understanding of a game
0: quite a bit i think personally and and you know some people you know will have a different sort of feeling on this, but I feel like there are there are genres i 'm very, very skilled at. And a lot of genres that are very popular that I'm very not skilled at and, and other genres that I just have spent no time with, almost no time with. Like as we were talking about MOBAs and RTSs and turn based strategy games, I am, I am woefully lacking, uh, in a lot of areas. And then I've played, you know, every platformer ever and feel like I can actually play those well. So it's very, you know, it's hard to fully evaluate, I think, or to honestly evaluate a game that I just, completely suck at and can barely make progress in if i'm having a terrible terrible time because i'm just hitting my head sort of against the controller then i'm i you know i will more often than not actually sort of if we're talking about a review i will give that to somebody else because i'm just not (laughs) going to be able to evaluate something on a on sort of its own merits basically
1: but my favorite game from last year was a a tactical strategy game called Massive Chalice. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And Massive Chalice has this... If you just play it as an XCOM thing, where you're moving troops around, and you're killing bad guys, and and you get to the end, and you beat the last mission, and you win, that's fine. You can enjoy Massive Chalice as a ride when you play it on normal, which which I think is the default difficulty. You're going to get through that, and it's probably not going to be much of a challenge. You're not going to develop much of a skill at Massive Chalice. But one of the important things that the designer, his name is Brad Muir, was doing in Massive Chalice is creating this sense of generations being dependent on other generations. And one of the ways that expresses itself is in the final mission where you have worked these units up through generations of creating families. And each unit is a member of a family. And in the final mission – this is the only place where this happens – If a unit dies, it then is replaced by the previous family member. And that's a really cool expression of this idea of intergenerational dependence. However, if you play on normal, most of the time, and and this has been my experience talking to other people, you're never going to lose anyone in the final mission, and you're never going to see that happen. Mm. Uh, And therefore, I think you're going to miss out on on a fundamental part of understanding what Brad Muir was trying to create in in of Chalice. Um so for me developing a skill challenging yourself letting a game really push back at you until you develop the skills to be able to push back at it I think that's hugely important to understanding what a designer is doing
2: Yeah Yeah I mean I I tend to agree with that and I think that's why I actually find it of hugely useful if a designer leaves a little tip on on my game settings that gives me an idea mm-hmm. of where the game is actually meant to be played right like I believe uh, I think sure. I believe Bungie usually like tells you uh at least in the old halo games I'm, I'm pretty sure like either it was just publicly assumed knowledge or the game actually sort of hinted that like heroic was, was kind of where the game really began uh and and below that you weren't really seeing the shooter that they that they right. sort of had in mind um, where i'm going through this right now and it's one of the reasons i brought this question up was uh right now i'm having a really tough time getting into xcom 2 and that is in part because I, I, it is not running as well as i might wish on my computer and i'm finding it a a clunkier experience than than, <laughs> than the first game but then the other aspect is my, my first my first game uh i just was not having much fun because i was finding it in or inordinately frustrating uh and it felt like a lot of things were happening uh that seemed very arbitrary and um You know, to, to, to borrow a term that, that I think Riot, uh, used sometimes, uh, there's a lot of anti-fun elements in, in (laughs) XCOM 2, uh, game mechanics or, or unit abilities that create things that as a player do not feel good to encounter. And so I was having this really, really negative, uh, reaction. And right now what I'm, what I'm trying to work through is I don't feel I can really commit to that point of view. Like I'm having this, I'm, I'm having this feeling like I may not enjoy this game nearly as much as I enjoyed the original XCOM, but at the same time, I also haven't really figured out. Like, I know I haven't really figured out how I'm supposed to be counter, how I'm supposed to be countering these things that I'm that I'm seeing in XCOM 2. And until I'm really like, f- until I really have a handle on the way this game wants me to to play it, the 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 way this game wants me to deal with these challenges it's throwing at me. Uh, while I can have a, a sort of uh, instinctive reaction, whether or not you know fun or not fun, I can't really evaluate it on a level beyond that, right? Because mm-hmm. I fundamentally haven't broken down uh, how it really is supposed to how it really is supposed to work, and I, and I feel like I can't really do that until I've I don't I, I I don't need to completely master the game, but I need to have some, I feel like I do need to have some elements of mastery.
1: I love that you brought up XCOM, because I'm experiencing that as well, Rob, and I think the solution, and this is crazy because I just got finished saying don't play games uneasy if you want to understand them, Uh, (laughs) for me... (laughs) I just had to drop XCOM 2 down to rookie and start a new game, which is the, the easiest level. Because yeah. at normal, where it is pushing back at you and where you do get into these death spirals, especially, Rob, and by the way, I don't believe in saving and reloading. No, nope. You know, whether I'm playing on Iron Man or not, <laughs> but I think a lot of people who play XCOM on normal and then get through to the end, when their main guy dies, they're like, screw this, I'm redoing this mission. And XCOM is more than happy to let them do that. You don't have to check that little Iron Man setting. So after after... Being in your situation, trying to play on normal because I'm normal, you know I can handle that, and just thinking I don't understand what, why am I losing? What, what could I have done there? I'm not even seeing the higher levels of the skill trees for these characters. Uh, there's all these cool texts that I that I've researched, but I can't develop. Um, I just could glimpse all of these tools. And I couldn't quite access. Yeah. So I restarted on Rookie, and, and Rob, it has made my life so much easier because I kind of feel like it is letting me now learn the skills that XCOM wants me to have <laughs> if I'm going to have this crazy idea of never reloading. Um, so Rob, swallow your pride. Go to Rookie. It's what I'm doing. I, I officially sanctioned that.
2: Nice. All right. <laughs> Uh, So I think we we should leave the discussion uh, off there in terms of uh, skill and understanding. Uh, Danielle, what do we have uh, uh, in terms of weekend correspondence?
0: Oh, goodness. We've got a lot of great letters this weekend, Rob. Starting with this one from Anthony. Uh, Anthony says, I thought this might be a funny subject to hear on air or see in the forums. To what extent did you go to play games when you were younger? Did you ever manipulate or trick someone into giving you or to buying you a game? My father was my stepfather, of course, but he and my mother just dated for a while, like years. He bought me Pokemon Red. I played it, convinced him to buy me Blue so I could catch them all. He did. A month later, Pokemon Yellow was coming out a few days before I noticed it. I brought the ad to him and he said, No, I just bought you a Pokemon game last week. I cried and went to my mother. Not fully understanding what I had just done. My mother (laughs) laid into him. Oh, so you can't provide for my son now? Why? Are you taking care of someone else's son? You know, he never asked you for anything. Don't you want my son to be happy? He took me to a video game store that weekend and we bought it. I still bring it up to him from time to time. Oh, this oh, poor man.
2: bastard! Oh my <laughs> this God! This <laughs> and, like Anthony might actually be a bit of a monster—a
1: <laughs> little bit child I, I, monster. I think Anthony should go into politics. Personally, that's that's some yeah. nice manipulation. That's how you get things done in, in the, on the on like a, a congressional floor. Nice work, Anthony. <laughs> the, oh,
2: that is uh, the your, your stepdad sounds like a really cool patient guy. Yeah, uh, yeah. but I do love the zero, zero to rage of of the mom in this story. Like, <laughs> Like, within seconds, like, why aren't you buying my son Pokemon? You probably have a secret family staff somewhere else.
0: Yeah, I see some baggage here, maybe, is <laughs> going on. Uh, I, I used to try a lot of this. I used to try really hard, uh, but my mother and my father had much better bullshit detectors um, than this poor stepfather in this situation. I remember trying, oh my lord... I was in, uh, I was on vacation, I was probably seven or eight, and I really wanted an NES game called Fester's Quest. And we were in New Hampshire, and I was like, Mom, this game looks so good. Can we buy this game? Can we buy this game? Now, as a general rule, we only got presents on, you know, our birthdays and Christmas and uh, for, you know, good report cards. Sorry, we're a giant nerd family. And, you know, I would get I would get rewarded. I was a very happy child. I had more than I needed. Um, but, you know, in general, you know, presents were for present time. Um, and I, I tried so hard to get my mother to buy me this game based entirely on the sort of goofy um, sort of the packaging. You know, I, I knew nothing about it. I didn't read video game magazines when I was seven. And, uh, you know, she always came up with a good logical excuse. It wasn't just no, mom says no. It was always... No, because X, Y, and Z. And I would kind of nod my little child head and be like, oh, okay, well, she got me. Um, And this one was, well, if we have to return it, we can't return it because we don't live in New Hampshire. There was a whole logic about sort of tax deals and all sorts of stuff that my mother explained to me and made it make sense. And yeah.
2: Let me tell you you a thing about tax structures in New England. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Uh, So for me, uh, I was always getting grounded, uh, when I was a kid. Like, the oh, no. one reason that I'm, I'm in this job is because I am the sort of person who destroyed, actively destroyed, like, other avenues, uh, for success. Oh, no. Uh, in partly due, in part due to video games. So, growing up, I was constantly, like, getting grounded, and then ungrounded briefly, and then screwing it all up again, and going <laughs> right back on, uh, probation. Nice. But the thing is, so when when I was growing up, uh, there was a computer room because com- like the computer was this very new thing; it was the special thing that had its own room in the house. And uh, we lived in this old like seventies like ranch house, and uh, the computer was stationed by this uh, really drafty patio door. Um, and the thing is. Uh, in the winter, that room would get so incredibly cold because the thermostat was located in a warm part of the house. My dad liked to keep the house cold. That room would get so cold at night. Uh, I'm not remotely kidding. Uh, every night, you could see your breath in that room. Oh God! Uh, on a few nights, it would get that dusted and frost crystals. Oh uh, wow! Thing. Like it was like the doctor. Jo- it was like the end of Doctor Zhivago, <laughs> and, and there was a computer <laughs> in the middle of it. <laughs> uh, so. You know, what I would do during my periods of probation uh, is that, you know, okay, so I couldn't play games while everyone is awake, but I could absolutely, like, tiptoe out there to that room and play games all I wanted from, like, 1130 at night until 5 in the morning. So I would, I would like, basically bundle up, uh, like, just, just wear, like, layers and layers of clothes, uh, like... Two socks and then a pair of socks wrapped around like the the place where your pa- where my PJs would meet the socks, so there was no no air gap. And then I would go in there, and I would sit in this freezing cold room, um, just like hands like aching in pain because it was so cold, and just play games all night. And the weird thing is, I'm not sure the gaming has ever been better than it was during during those nights, right? Because it was like it was like the most illicit. Thing I was suffering. I was suffering for my art, uh, and <laughs> that was that. That's sort. Of, that's that's the length I went to to keep the PC gaming going. And uh, yeah, I mean, damn, if it wasn't a lot of fun.
0: It's oh, amazing, Tom. How about you? Did you ever pull any tricks? Oh, for, for me, for any of this? Yeah,
1: yeah. So for me, it was having an Apple II when I was a kid, and you know there were some games on Apple II's, and I would use it to write papers in school and whatnot and then this game comes out called Wing Commander, and I'm looking at, like, pictures of it in a gaming magazine, and I'm reading about it, and how you can get a speech pack where it talks to you, and there's there's this story with these...
2: God, what a boondoggle that
1: was. <laughs> oh, but it was worth it, yeah, at that time, yeah. And there's these stories about, like, space cats that you're fighting, and there's a space <laughs> aircraft carrier, and I'm like, oh my god, I have to have this, but it's not on the Apple II. You know, I had backed the wrong horse. It was, like, a PC-only game. So... I basically invented to my mother all this, these reasons that I needed a PC for things in school that I couldn't do on an Apple II. Like, I couldn't write a paper. Like, I invented all this stuff that only a PC could do that would help me personally in my academic career. And by the way, it might – i didn't. I actually, I'm sure I didn't even bring up the thing about Wing Commander. Uh, but that, obviously, that was my entire motivation there. And I <laughs> – I confess, I lied because at that point, I could have done everything with the Apple that I that I did with the PC school related. Uh, but that, that's sure? how I got into Wing Commander is through duplicity. Thanks, Chris
2: Roberts. <laughs> uh, all right. So our next our next email. Uh, Howdy, weekend team. Recently, you both talked about the review process and the tools available for expressing your opinion. In an act of great folly, I decided to actually play and write a review for all the games in my Steam library. Uh, The toolset available is very limited. It's a simple uh, thumbs-up, thumbs-down recommendation for a game. Reviewing old games only compounds this issue, along with re-releases. As great as uh, Game A is, uh, is Game A HD uh, the version to recommend? It it comes as a shock for me to ache uh, for that, meh, it's fine, uh, (laughs) 7 review score. Uh, So how would you handle reviews with such a limited toolset, And how would you review old games that were great but don't hold up to modern conventions? Best of Weekends to you, John.
0: Oh, man. This is actually sort of something I very recently uh, sort of dealt with as we were deciding whether or not, you know, my new job at Zam, whether or not we were going to have scores on our reviews. And we ended up with a yes-no sort of verdict. So at least in in some way, it's kind of like the thumbs up or thumbs down. Uh, mainly because I just wanted to completely avoid the any any kind of ambivalence. If you feel ambivalent about a game, it's a no, basically. Or unless it's it's a very, very incredibly intense ambivalence on sort of (laughs) both ends. And then, well, then we have to talk about it. Then the text of the review needs to, to tell the, you know, to tell the reader what they need to know. Um, and I love it. I love working with that system now, you know, for a long time, forever, you know, I had been sort of, uh, you know, if, if not myself assigning scores, at least working with a system that had, you know, the, the 10 point system or the ABC system or whatever else. And, uh, yeah, I, I actually really dig having a more limited set of uh, recommendation tools anyway. Um, in terms of older games, God, I, I feel like I have personally reviewed or commissioned a review for like eight HD remasters in the last month. So this is a very <laughs> a very near and dear uh, topic for myself as well. Bottom line, you know, a game can be important and it can be incredible. It can be, you know, a seminal work. And if it doesn't play well and you didn't enjoy the experience then say that, you know, then be be honest. You don't have to recommend everything even if you think it's important. Um, In terms of, of the way I feel about reviews, they are not product reviews. They are sort of experience reviews. And if your experience was positive or negative, I'd you know, go with your gut. Don't, don't make concessions basically. Uh, at least I don't want to make concessions for whether or not something is important. As long as I can, you know, sort of note that in the text that I do think this was important, this, you know, sparked a revolution X, Y, and Z. That's great. But if it doesn't play well, if you are not getting anything out of the experience, uh, not necessarily enjoyment. Um, you know, if something is doing it for you in on another level, that's great. That's to me worth a recommendation. But if not, eh, let's just be honest. That's my take.
1: Uh, I would like to jump in because this is something that... Yeah, please do. If we're, if we're not careful, we're going to be here for three hours listening to me talk. So I'm going <laughs> to try to be, be concise. Uh, what was the name of the, the writer, the, the, the person who wrote the letter? Uh, this John. is John. Yeah, John, I'm so glad that you asked this. And first of all, uh, Danielle, I'm so glad to hear you guys go in with, with scores, with rating systems, because I think <laughs> opting out is, is cowardly. Uh, you should be able to attach a, defi- a decisive summary... To your opinion, there's no shame in that, and it's a great yeah. way to to, uh, to sort of it, it's a good hook. Is it, it can make an opinion interesting to lead with yes or no or very yes yeah. or very no, um, <laughs> and the the fewer choices that you have, the more important each choice is. You know, the one to ten scale is a joke for many many reasons, but one of them being <laughs> you don't have to commit. You, you just give a sort of a a milk toast is yeah, seven. Uh, yep. <laughs> but when you have, you know, a thumbs up or a thumbs down, you have to really – that's a way more interesting opinion than uh, seven. Uh, <laughs> so embrace that. Uh, embrace that, John. Uh, you know, think about it. Commit. C- committing like that, a committed opinion is always more interesting. Uh, as for older games – There's a reason, for instance, that your byline is at the top of a review. A review is subjective. Here is your opinion. There is also a reason that there is a date at the top of a review. (laughs) (laughs) A review is a snapshot in time of your experience with a video game. And if this older game holds up or doesn't hold up that is part of your experience don't pretend that you're talking about how you felt about it 10 years ago how you might feel about <laughs> it in 10 years how uh the impact it may or may not have in 20 years that's not what a review is that's like speculation that's leave that stuff to nostradamus your review is your experience with the game at the moment that that date line is put at the top of the review uh, always keep that in mind when writing and reading reviews i would say
2: i think once upon a time gary witta pc gamer uh would advocate for the shit or brilliant uh, review scale <laughs> uh which you know was it was you know is is sort of jest. but I, but i do like the the idea of a of a review scale sort of forcing that you know is, is this game either really memorable and something you should play or is it just one of the many many games that will kind of make you go anywhere from you know ugh, no no way on earth to eh, you know who really cares. Uh so I, I definitely sort of like scales like that. I think um older games are an interesting uh case cuz like take a take a game like old school XCOM, like the original like 1993 XCOM. Yeah like i I, w- I would still recommend playing it, but I would no longer recommend playing it to actually like have an enjoyable gaming experience <laughs> in the year 2016. I think mean, it's worth playing because it is it remains unique. Uh, some of the ideas have br- been brought forward, some have sort of been abandoned. but I think if you're interested in like tactical games, uh the original Xcom is absolutely worth revisiting and playing just long enough. To sort of say, ah, I know what's going on here, yeah. and then you are liberated from the obligation of having <laughs> to struggle uh, with that awful, awful interface, uh, and you can you can return to modernity. Uh, but there's there's a lot of games. I mean, I I, I tend to be, you know, I, you know, not only. Am I someone who enjoys sort of classics? Like I, you know, I'm I'm someone who, for no good reason, studied like you know Latin and Greek in college. Awesome. So I yeah. like sort of these <laughs> these antique experiences. Uh, even though I, I have to admit, like in a lot of cases, there there's no damn good reason uh, to to go and and play these things today, unless you just want that broadening context uh, that, that older things can provide. So I, I kind of want sort of that middle setting, right? Where like d- do do some of these older games hold up? No, a lot of a lot of them don't. Uh, are they still really interesting to play, just to sort of to sort of think about and and sort of engage with on that level? Absolutely, and uh, that's that's another thing that I tend to try to bring to reviews uh, of both old games and, and new.
0: All right, our next letter comes in. Let's see what the name is here from TJ. TJ says, "Hey Weekenders, I've really enjoyed the new show, and I found it's getting me to think more about video games as a medium." I wanted to share some thoughts I've had about protagonists in video games. Why do so many games have only one protagonist? Traditionally, video games seem to have reserved multiple player characters as a gimmick and primarily aesthetic change only. TV, movies, and novels frequently use multiple characters in the protagonist's role at times to create dynamic characters and create complex universes. But there are far fewer examples of this in games. One notable example is in games, at least, is in the third act of The Last of Us, when, it's okay, we don't need spoiler warnings here, I don't think, Joel gets injured and you play as Ellie. By taking a break from Joel and following Ellie, I feel like Naughty Dog found a way for players to relate better to Ellie and develop a deeper understanding of the relationship between the two. With the raised awareness of the lack of diversity in games, might video games take a page from the TV, movies, and books and develop more complex stories about multiple characters instead of focusing solely on one character? What do you think it would take for us to have more story-driven games with multiple protagonists? What are some other games that handle this well? Or is there a reason I'm overlooking for games to avoid multiple, uh, sorry, overlooking games that avoid uh, multiple protagonists in a game? TJ, as I was reading this letter, uh, I thought about a few times where this worked reasonably well, and one of them was, you know, our favorite thing to talk about here on the show, uh, Witcher 3, (laughs) last year, where it's sort of like The Last of Us, you know, you play... 90% 90% of the game as uh, Geralt, but you do play as Ciri at times, and it does break up the gameplay, and it does give us sort of her perspective, uh, and so on and so forth. But I think you're right. I think, you know, this isn't done often in games, and, and usually when it's done, it's, it's just sort of to show well, you know, on the, on the most basic level, and meanwhile, this was what was going on here, or in flashback, or, or something like that. Very, very, very simple sort of narrative devices that are used. Um, so, yeah, Tom and Rob, what do you guys think Oh my god,
1: this? you guys get such great listener email, this is awesome. TJ, what a fantastic point to bring <laughs> up. Uh, because TJ's making me think of, and I'm not even sure I realized this, some of what I feel are the most amazing advances in video game narrative and telling a story through a video game, use what TJ is talking about uh, and share multiple perspectives. And they do it as an important part of the story. Uh, as soon as you started reading his letter, Danielle, I thought of Grand Theft Auto V, which mm-hmm. whether you're into huh, it or yeah, not, yeah. the point of Grand Theft Auto V, it's a narrative about three characters, each of whom represents – uh, an aspect of the psychology of a video gamer like the id the super ego and the ego it's not quite that clean cut but that's clearly something that that is based on having multiple characters and they do it so well they integrate it so well into the gameplay into the storytelling um and rockstar by the way has a history of this uh i don't think it's a spoiler to talk about the end of red dead redemption at this point no it's but okay. what an amazing <laughs> narrative shift i mean to, to get a little highfalutin, when Hitchcock made uh, Psycho, you're watching a movie about Janet Lee embezzling from a bank, and it's a crime thriller, and what's going to mm-hmm. happen? And then he, <laughs> he, he basically like sucker punches you by killing her and making it a movie about the guy who killed her. Gr- Red Dead Redemption, the same thing with at the end of the story when – I get it confused. I think it's James that dies, and his son John becomes the playable character. Because, as TJ mentions, you so rarely see these multiple protagonist perspectives in a game. Um, that's hugely jarring and memorable and super effective. Um, another game that comes to mind for me, uh, and, and I've long thought, if if someone was to ever ask me, Tom, what is the best video game ever made? I've always kind of worried somebody's <laughs> going to ask me that, and I'm going to need to have an answer ready. Uh, and I do, by the way. And that, that answer would be Bioshock 2. And for many, many reasons.
0: Nice. Uh, My man. Totally. Yeah, Yeah, I'm loving
1: it. I love Uh, it. So, And and one of the many, many amazing things that Bioshock 2 does is near the end, you play as one of the little sisters. And you've been playing these two games and watching these little sisters and establishing empathy with them. And that was the whole reason that little sisters were originally supposed to be uh, these bug-like creatures, And at one point, Irrational and Ken Levine, in developing it, decided, well, we need to make the player empathize with these things. Don't make them look like ugly little bugs. What can we do? They made them these these helpless little girls, and that creates a very emotional response. So for two whole games, pretty much, you've been empathizing and looking at and either protecting or feeling terrible because you're exploiting these little girls. (laughs) And then at one point in Bioshock 2, you are – playing is a little cistern. It's the ultimate form of empathy. And uh, I, ju- I just love that, uh, that, that the protagonist shifted at that point. So-
0: yeah, and it was done so well, too, sort of showing exactly what they were conditioned yeah. to see you know this beautiful yeah. version of this horrible messed you, you up world you get little
2: glimpses of what yeah. the the familiar world of rapture you're used to seeing and then the sort of fairy tale version that, yeah. that they inhabit and oh my god the beautiful uh, use of uh that song uh my heart belongs to daddy playing <sighs> yes. throughout that scene as you sort of drift through uh rapture oh it's such a it's such a tour de force moment Oh, yeah. great um yeah i mean i i think so I, I think there are strengths that come from sometimes focusing on one protagonist overall. Like I think Geralt is an interesting case because uh, Geralt has a perspective on the world that largely, like you can agree with it or disagree with it, uh, and you're allowed to to make some choices. But it's always sort of shot through this lens of of who Geralt is. Yeah. Uh, and if you played the entire Witcher series, by the end of that series, uh, you've developed a really strong relationship with this one character, and I, I really like. That I, I like the idea of, of being limited, what, but on the other hand, where I think we run into not necessarily problems, but I think this is one reason why you, you tend to have games that don't do uh, multiple protagonists, I feel like there is there are a lot of players and maybe even quite a few game designers who tend to view the player character role as that of an avatar who is somehow supposed mm-hmm. to reflect uh, the player and Which is, I think, also contributes to having a lot of milk toast uh, protagonists, Uh, because you know, if if the if the player sort of the player character is sort of this vague sketch of a hero, uh, you know, anyone can sort of read themselves into that. But I think when you have multiple protagonists, you're sort of obligated to create uh, characters with different points of view uh, and and different different roles in the game, and I think that can be really interesting, but. I feel like a lot of games do just kind of want to place you at the center of the story as a uh, fairly typical hero. That, that
1: is kind of genre dependent yeah. though, because I, I think RPG players who are used to party based RPGs like Baldur's Gate, I think is a prime example, uh, have been exposed to this typical, there's this storytelling with multiple protagonists like Baldur's Gate has canned, not canned, but, but pre-made characters. Um, and they interact in certain ways. Uh, some of the the bioware rpgs are the same thing like mass effect um, even though you have the one shepherd there are all these other characters who are
2: arguably protagonists as well yeah i was you know i was thinking of mass effect uh, as i was talking about that cuz that's an interesting case where you a lot of times, Shepard's role is really to be kind of the observer in other right. people's stories, and you yeah. can choose the outcome of, of what those characters will do. So, like when you when you go and discover like Morden Solis's, uh backstory, completely preposterously, you get to choose what Morden wants to do with the <laughs> cure to um, the uh, the, gen- the Genophage. The genophage. Yeah. Uh, there's no reason that Morden needs Shepard to to weigh in on this, but really, the story is about sort of seeing. The world through Morton's eyes and understanding what he's been through and kind of what he wants his legacy to be, and so it's an, it, like the Mass Effect series is an interesting case of you know having it both ways and doing a pretty good job of it, where people get really invested in their Shepherd. That my Shepherd is the the avatar of what I've wanted to do in the game, but really most of what what Shepherd does is bear witness to what other people are getting up to.
0: Yeah, Bioware does it. Uh... They kind of have their cake and eat it, too, in a lot of ways with, yeah. with how they've uh, designed their games. Uh, at least the, the more recent ones. Anyway, you know, Dragon Age and Mass Effect. Awesome. So, I think with that, it's time for us to go into our weekend projects where we talk about, uh, you know, a piece of media that we're really enjoying. Books, music, TV, games. All, all, all things are fair game. Um, I'm going to actually go first uh, because what I'm going to say is going to be very brief. Uh, basically... I am playing Firewatch, which we all know it's, uh, you know, made by our fine producer and friends of the show and and part of the network. So I won't go on and on, sort of sound like cronyism, uh, but I just wanted to say I am. Very much enjoying it. Now, Tom, uh, I know you, you've said some things about Firewatch, and uh, you know, I, I actually really enjoyed your review of the game. Uh, I do think it is a ride, uh, certainly. Not not really a skill-based experience, but a uh, you know, ride-like experience where it kind of takes you on that ride. But I'm really, really enjoying the game uh, for its writing and actually really, really loving its environment design. Um, it just, it feels like being in the kind of world that I really, really love to be in. I'm kind of a very outdoorsy person. I miss California like crazy for this particular reason, because it was very easy when I lived in San Francisco to kind of go out and actually be in the wilderness, you know, half an hour away, uh, from the city, that sort of thing. Uh, it's just a really well-written game in a really beautiful, well-designed environment. Uh, so I'm loving it. And again, like I said, I didn't want to go on and on. About this, so I will open the floor uh, up. Tom, why don't you go yeah. next? What,
1: what yeah, are you? Enjoying I just want right to say now? too about Firewatch because no one can accuse me of cronyism. I don't. I don't work here. Uh, <laughs> I, I love the story, and the writing in Firewatch, and especially, yeah. You know, Firewatch does two things that way too few video games do, and it does them very well. And one of them is character development, and not just the protagonist. Like yes. I love the way it reveals things about the main characters, uh, and it's just, it's just beautiful writing. The other thing that I love that it does. And I love that people – some people don't like this and hate it and are like, what? It's, it wasn't any good. I love the ending of Firewatch. I love – and I don't, I'm not going to spoil anything, but I love how Firewatch concludes. And some people have said, oh, it's weak. It's anticlimactic. They, I would say argue they're missing the point. The ending of Firewatch, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Way too few games know how to end. So, uh, And as for my choice of media, um, I do a movie podcast at quarter to three, and every year we do our top ten movies. There there are three of us. We each make a top 10 list. We discuss it. It's no big surprise. My favorite, I mean, this is almost cliched, and I just feel like I'm just a lemming saying this. My favorite movie last year was Fury Road. But my second favorite movie, and I can't get enough of this, I just rewatched it. Uh, And nobody's heard of this thing. So my media choice this week is a movie called Victoria, which uh, is a German production. It's filmed in Berlin. and I kind of don't want to say anything about it, but this is part of the press about it. And if you were to, like, go go watch it at Amazon.com or whatever, you can't avoid knowing this. The the gimmick, quote-unquote, in Victoria is it's all one take. It's a two-hour movie, and it never cuts, uh-huh. and it doesn't do any CG trickery or, like, or, or editing trickery. Like, rope people say rope is one take. It's not. Sometimes the camera will move behind a... Yeah,
0: it's like... Yeah, 10 yeah, or something, right? right. Yeah. There's a movie
2: called Russian Ark <laughs> that did the same thing, but there were exactly, putting, putting exactly. Is, so you yeah. just you, yeah.
1: you, you move the camera behind something and then you splice in a new scene? Th- there's none of that in Victoria, uh, but more importantly, Victoria it, it has the feel, and I, I kind of hate to say this because it might scare people away, but it has the feel and the immedi- is, the immediacy of a stage play because it's not hmm. edited. There is zero editing. Uh, and editing is an important tool in storytelling in, in movies, and Victoria doesn't yes. use any of it. Uh, so you exist and live in real time with these characters. But more important than the gimmick, the amazing thing about Victoria is an actress named leia Costa and an actor named uh, two actors leia Costa and, and Frederick Lau. And the movie is basically about them falling in love in real time. And as a guy who watches a lot of movies. I, I will say Victoria is, has the most raw energy of any movie I have ever seen. Uh, and I adore it. I've seen it three wow. times now, and it never gets old. So I wish more people knew about Victoria. It's available for video on demand, and I encourage anyone to go watch it.
0: Awesome. That's on my list, for sure, my, my short list. So, Rob, it's your turn. <laughs>
2: Uh, Yeah, so this week I'm reading a pretty interesting book called Flash Boys uh, by Michael Lewis. And it is a book about sort of the rise of high-frequency trading uh, on Wall Street. And it sounds like a really dry topic, (laughs) but Michael Lewis is a really, really gifted uh, storyteller. And he actually wrote sort of one of the seminal books about uh, an older era of Wall Street called, I want to say, Liar's Poker. But... uh, The the book opens with this sort of discussion of what people imagine Wall Street to be like, uh, what people imagine exchanges to be like, and a lot of us still imagine, uh, you know, a bunch of guys in color coded sport coats on (laughs) on an exchange floor, uh, people shouting orders, these guys sort of taking jotting notes down, stuff like that. And right at the opening of the book, he's like, "That world is gone. Uh, That 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 has all ended. All the exchanges exist absolutely one hundred percent." uh on server stacks uh in in buildings sort of scattered around the US uh, a lot of them concentrated uh just across the river in New Jersey huh okay. but what's fascinating is it it ends up sort of being this almost like a uh, cyberpunk mystery uh <laughs> because what it starts with is developers uh, not developers um Traders start noticing that the mar- the new markets are behaving really, really oddly. Uh, so you would like it, it opens with this one trader at uh, the Royal Bank of, Royal Bank of Canada uh, who's running the the Wall Street office. And he would see 10,000 shares of, say, Apple, uh, you know, on sale. And he would go in to put the, uh, you know, he would go in to, to buy them, uh, at the price they're offered. And the moment he would, he would try to execute that transaction, uh, all those shares would vanish. Uh, the market would completely disappear. And then the price would inflate because suddenly the, the shares are, are much, more, uh, much more scarce and the price was much higher than he originally tried to go for. And over time, as this happens again and again, uh, what that's doing is making every single transaction a lot more expensive uh, for, for, for traders. And what begins to dawn on him is that there are all these high-frequency trading companies out there who are employing these really, really sophisticated algorithms uh, and doing things like taking advantage of the millisecond like latency uh, that it takes to deliver an order to those server stacks, uh, and it begins it begins taking you on this like magical mystery tour of like the new Wall Street <laughs> where you've got these sketchy uh, high-frequency trading firms um, like paying off, bribing, do whatever it takes to get their servers, their trading servers. Closer physically to the exchange servers inside these big uh, th- these big farms, uh, and you get guys running in there measuring lengths of fiber optic <laughs> cable. Uh, wow. there's, there's one guy who who asks like he buys an old server stack that used to belong to Toys R Us. Toys R Us, and he's like, no, no, no. Leave the Toys R Us branding on it. I don't want anyone to know that that's my server, because uh, it was like an inch and a half closer uh, to the the stock exchange server. And so it's all about this realization that like the the market has become this really this completely like virtualized place. And microseconds and milliseconds have become basically weaponized by computer programmers to sort of like bait and switch uh, people who are still trading the conventional way. And it's just it's it's this really interesting story uh, that is both educational because it sort of it, it tears down that image of of how the exchanges used to work. Right. And it peels that back. And then starts diving into sort of this new world of uh, electronic exchanges and what the new you know what what the what the new face of Wall Street really is uh, and the various ways the, the, the game has become rigged uh, by you know by basically like computer experts. You know, Rob, how those like guys that. could get better so
1: at doing what they're doing by playing RTSs and fighting <laughs> games to improve their <laughs> reflexes.
2: Yes. I knew that was coming. They're, yes, they're frame counting. <laughs> yeah uh so anyway that's uh that's the book i'm really into this week uh i i highly recommend it even if like finance is not your thing it's, it's not my thing uh but reading about it, it's just this completely bonkers uh it, it's sort of like reading non-fiction snow crash uh is, is the way i describe <laughs>
0: wow. it wow nice awesome i again there's so many things i need to add to my list Very, very cool stuff. Awesome. Uh, So with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idol Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idol Thumbs Network.
2: Uh, Before we go, I would like to find out where we can listen to Tom's movie podcast.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. Tom, tell us. First of all, thank you so much for being here, spending time with us, telling us your opinions about games and the world and money and Moneyball. And also... Uh, Well, thank you for letting me crash
1: the party. I had a great time. Uh, You can find me at (laughs) quarterto3.com. You just spell out the word quarter and then two and then three. Uh, And that's where our podcast is hosted. Uh, We do a weekly movie and games podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at QT3, the letter Q, the letter T, the number three. Um, So come on by. Have a visit. And again, thank you guys. This was so awesome. Thanks for having thank
0: me. Thank you. And Quarter to 3 is great. It's a place I go to very often for all kinds of uh, inspiration and and just, you know, just wonderful writing. So, thank you, Tom. I really appreciate it. Uh, Also, of course, if you're enjoying this show, please do tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell a frenemy, tell your family, tell whoever it is who you think might enjoy our podcast uh, to go ahead and give us a listen. And if you could rate us on iTunes, we would really appreciate that. We would love that as well. Uh, You can learn more about the show at IdleWeekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at IdleWeekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. For Rob Zachney and this week for Tom Chick, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends.
2: Well that was a delight. Okay, I'm pressing
1: s- stop, right? Let me Yep.
2: Yes.